I know what's wrong with the world, and I know how to fix it. In our YouTube and Twittered world, there is no shortage of people toting this kind of statement. Whether they're telling you to save the environment by being a vegan or solve all your joint pain by only eating beef or which politicians are Freemasons or Satanists or follow God, there's a ton of 20-year-olds in their mom's basements in front of webcams telling us what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. Everybody wants to rule the world after all. But whether it was 2,000 years ago or today, I've never met a person who doesn't want something to change. Delusions of grandeur is like one of the signs of psychosis, yet deep in all our hearts, we have a little bit of a feeling that we could really change the world. We could really fix what is broken. Now, 2,000 years ago, somebody did change the world. Somebody's actions had it so that slaves and Roman politicians would sit at a table and break bread together. Somebody overthrew the dominant philosophy and theology of the day in just a few centuries. Somebody laid the foundation for our rights, our freedoms, our morality, our science. So if we really want to see the world change, the right question might be, how did Jesus change it? And I think he answered that question for us on a cool spring evening in Jerusalem, having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. If we've not met yet, my name's Ricky. I'm pastor of community life here at Summit Drive Church, and I'm so glad you're here with us. We're in a series called Come and See, where we're exploring encounters with Jesus through the Gospel of John and how Jesus fulfills our deepest longings, reveals our deepest needs, and answers our big questions. And today we're going to see that the way Jesus changes the world is by renovating individual hearts, filling them with his Holy Spirit, and then leading them. So we're going to look at this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, and we're going to learn about being born again and again and again. We're going to learn what the dangers of being a know-it-all are, and we're going to see truth at its most offensive. So you can turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 2, starting at verse 23. John writes, Now while he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee. A man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Have you ever had those conversations where you're sitting down and you've got your agenda and you want to talk about one thing, but in one sentence the other person makes it about something else? Therapists do this. I know you therapists in the room. I know you're sneaky and tricky like this, right? Like some poor client just waltzes into your office and sits down thinking they're going to talk about a problem at work, right? Like the guy in the office next to mine, he's got a full upright piano in there. He just pounds at it all day. <coughs> Gerald. Um, but then you sit there and you scratch your chin and, 
can you say, well, it really annoys you when somebody expresses themselves. You know, how, how do you feel unfulfilled in your self-expression? Get out of my head, man. Like, stay out of there. Leave that alone. This is the type of thing that Jesus is doing with Nicodemus, I think. Nicodemus is sauntering in, wanting to talk about one thing, and Jesus turns the tables on him pretty quickly. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? Unlike our 20-year-old YouTubers in front of a webcam, Nicodemus had real credentials. He had been trained and brought up from boyhood to be a religious and political leader. He would have memorized like the whole of the first five books of the Bible. He would have followed a rabbi around for decades. And as a Pharisee, he believed that the reason God had let Israel be conquered by Rome is because they weren't following the Mosaic law. So he had like rules on top of rules on top of rules. He lived at a level of religious and moral vigor that makes monks look lazy. This guy has worked hard to be where he is. And he has a huge stake in the established world order. And maybe that's why he comes to Jesus at night. After all, this Galilean miracle worker, he's unproved, untested. He ain't got no Ivy League degree that he's flashing to people as he's walking around. He's come out of nowhere. He's just flipped the temple upside down, which the Pharisees had a huge stake in. People are starting to believe in him. So I think, and I think this because John has given us the end of chapter 2, where he says, you know, Jesus hasn't entrusted himself to anyone. As in, Jesus has not picked a side yet, right? There are all these different politics out there that have what they think will change the world, and Jesus hasn't given himself to any of them yet. So he comes, Nicodemus, at night, and I think he's kind of, sidling up alongside Jesus. He says, oh, Rabbi, we know you must be from God. Nobody could do these important things if they weren't from God. The undertone, but whose side are you really on, Jesus? Is it mine? I represent some powerful people. I represent some powerful interests. Tell me you're the one that we've really been waiting for. Tell me you're on my side. And Jesus cuts through all that garbage like a lightsaber through ice cream. No one, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Born again. It's a phrase you might have heard before. Uh, you might conjure some images in your mind for you, but what, what does it really mean? Well, one, John likes poetics, right? He, he, he makes a lot of double entendres with what he writes. So the word for again is also the word for from above, so he's kind of operating at two levels. He means born again, as in like, go back to being a baby and start over, but also born from God, like God renewing you. So born again from God might be a way of saying it. And a lot of people will give you ideas that this is about, you know, regeneration and being renewed as a sinner, but I think they sometimes miss just who it is Jesus is talking to in this instance. Nicodemus is a Jewish man. He believes that because of his blood, because of where he was born and who he was born to, he is one of God's chosen people. Nicodemus is one of the good guys, okay? He's one of the righteous ones. He lives all of these crazy rules, right down to like how many cilantro leaves to tithe on a Sunday afternoon. Like this guy takes it seriously. The kingdom of God, that's what he's trying to build for God's sake, literally. And it is to this person that Jesus says, 
if you want to see the thing you've been waiting for, it's going to be like starting all over. It's going to be like becoming a baby all over again. And this is where the text reaches beyond this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, and I think comes to us. Because let's face it, most of us in this room are Nicodemus. We were born and raised into this, trained and groomed. We have ideas about the orthodoxy we need to defend. We know what color the carpet should be in the church and how many hymns should be saying for the revival to come down. And if Jesus saunters into our neighborhood, we might sit him down and say, you're really great, you're really important, but you're on my side, right? You see things my way, don't you? Because there's no shortage of Jesuses out there. Right? There's the, the gun-toting, wave-flagging conservative Jesus, the tolerant, liberal, love-is-love love Jesus. Right? There's, there's a Jesus for Koreans and Nicaraguans and Nigerians and North Americans, uh, a Jesus who's a jokester, a Jesus who is shy and quiet and who, who doesn't bruise a petal on a flower. And none of them, none of them, none of them are who is sitting across from Nicodemus in this moment. We never graduate from needing our hand held to be walked out to the bathroom in the kingdom of heaven. We are never the center of the universe. We are always a dwarf planet orbiting the Son of God. We are never fully an insider by our own steam and our own ideas. It is only because of what he's done. Tim Keller comments on this passage. He says that Jesus is pressing Nicodemus on his smug self-satisfaction. What did you have to do, Jesus is asking, with being born? Did you work hard at the privilege of being born? You don't earn or contribute anything to being born. It's a free gift of life. So it is with the new birth. There will never be a moment where we might not need to be born again. Christianity is a process of continual conversion, as one person says, being born again and again and again. Now, I'm not saying don't have convictions. I'm not saying, you know, don't hold on to what you truly believe. But what I'm saying is the capital C conviction, the capital B belief is not a rule or an idea or a set of principles or morals. It is the person of Jesus Christ, the one who later in this gospel will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You never get to win Jesus over to your side. It's about him winning you over to his side. It's his kingdom, his power, his glory after all. So we may need to be born again and again and again. Now we could spend a couple more weeks on that, but Jesus has only uttered one sentence, so let's keep going. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. 
Now, if Nathaniel, from our first sermon a couple weeks ago in this series, if Nathaniel was a skeptic, Nicodemus is the know-it-all. He's the insider. He's the elite. He's the Ivy League-educated ruler of the world, right? The Pharisees had political power. They're the reason Jesus got crucified in the end, okay? And it's dangerous being a know-it-all. And I say that because I am a card-carrying member of that society, okay? I wouldn't be up here if I wasn't. It takes a little bit of hubris to do this kind of thing. And one of the reasons that I know that it's dangerous being a know-it-all is because I have sisters. Like, we'll be sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner, and this is just kind of like a made-up example, but, you know, we'll be sitting down, and like Grandpa will be like, oh, this turkey, it's so moist. You know, last year, the turkey we had, it was just so banal, dry. And I can't help myself. Like, I try, guys, okay? But I'm just like, yeah, it's pronounced banal. And like a shark, like a shark smelling blood in the water, my 21-year-old sister zeroes in on me, right? And she's like, it's pronounced banal, look at me. It's a terrible impersonation. And then my 30-year-old sister pounces like a jungle cat on top of me and rips some of my leg hair out. That's 3-0, 30 years old. She still does this. And then she's holding the hairs and she asks, odds or evens? Right? It's a dangerous game she plays with me. And if I guess odds and it's evens, she pulls out leg hair again. God finds ways to keep us humble. Maybe Nicodemus just needed sisters. I don't know. Some people will tell you that Nicodemus doesn't get what Jesus is saying, that he's, like, surprised, right? Like, you know, how can someone be born this old? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? To those people, I say, go read some Jewish rabbis. They're very good at metaphors, okay? I think Nicodemus is rolling with the punches here. He gets what Jesus is saying, and I think he's even getting autobiographical because he says, how can someone be born when they are old. As in Jesus, yeah, I get it, man, okay? Pharisees, there's a couple things they do that aren't great. I don't like it either. There may be some broken things in the system, but I am 66 years old, man. I got two more years until that pension kicks in, and then I am feet in the sand in Jericho. You expect me to start all over again? Like, that's like crawling back in the birth canal, man. You can't mean this. And Jesus' answer, Jesus' response, how, how can this happen? How, how does someone start all over again, even though they've invested so much and worked so hard to get where they are? One word, well, two words if you include the article, the Spirit. The Spirit. In fact, he turns to Nicodemus and he says, this shouldn't surprise you, man. You should have seen this coming. Why? Because your scriptures say so. This whole water and the spirit business is almost definitely a quote from Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 24. This is Yahweh, the Lord, God, speaking through Ezekiel to Israel. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And this is where we get back to the problem of change. 
In our current politics and culture, we often miss the trees for the forest when it comes to changing the world. We're obsessed with systems and power and, and like, the, the big people in white houses, right? And that's part of it, right? And theology, we're being reminded as well. Sin is not just an individual is- issue. It's systemic, right? We build broken people, build broken systems. But the problem is, is if you fix the system and not the people, those broken people are just going to break your shiny new system again. Right? And the Pharisees, they, they were systems people, right? They were building a culture of honor and shame to keep people in line, to keep them from sinning, to keep them from breaking the law because they're like, if you guys all get it right, then God's going to show up and he's going to fix everything. But God had said to Israel through Ezekiel centuries before, that ain't going to work. What's going to do it is the spirit. I will put a new spirit in you. Because the problem's spiritual. If you really think about it, if you really sit and think what's wrong with the world, it comes down to individual people who can't control their motivations, their desire, their will, who want the wrong things and keep pursuing them. All those invisible parts of us that drive us, right? That's where the problems are. And God's saying to fix this, I will have to renovate your heart and fill you with my spirit and make it so that you actually want differently so that you want the right things. That's how it's going to happen. That's how I'm going to do it. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this should be no surprise to you. And there's just a couple other notes just to help you understand Jesus' response. When he mentions water, he's almost definitely pointing back to John's baptism in chapter 1. And John's baptism, we sometimes miss this, was a protest movement, actually. John was looking at the religious system of the day And he says, this isn't working. This isn't atoning for our sins. They're too great. And then he gets kind of Pentecostal. Come on down to the river with me, people. Come on. Wash yourself clean, right? And he takes the people away from the city, away from the system. And just like they crossed the Red Sea once, he says, we need to cross these waters and start again, right? So I think Jesus is pointing back to that and saying that's that's a key ingredient to this coming kingdom. And then he actually tells Nicodemus, he says, flesh cannot give birth to this. Flesh cannot change the spirit, right? This is not going to be some politician's idea or some economist's idea, right? This is going to be a move of God. And then it all builds to a crescendo. It all builds to the center of their conversation. The verse that if I was the tattooing type, I'd have tattooed on me, but it's about the wind. And I don't like know how you would make an image of the wind in a tattoo, but that's another point. In verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, just a little hint, he's talking about God here because the word for wind is the word for spirit in Greek, right? So the spirit wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear its sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. D.A. Carson has a really great comment on this in his commentary on John. He says that the point is that the wind can neither be controlled nor understood by human beings. But it does not mean we cannot detect the wind's effects. We hear its sound, watch the swaying grasses, see the clouds scuttling by, hide in fear before the worst windstorms. So it is with the Spirit. We can neither control him nor understand him. But that does not mean we cannot witness his effects. Where the spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. It's a little theology moment. 
God is limitless, okay? Limitless potential. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Nothing can impede him ever except the limitations that he has placed upon himself, which are his character and his promises. His character, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving and just. His promises, he promises to, he promised to bring the Messiah. He promised to bring the Spirit. He promises to move us to a place where there's no more death, nor crying, nor tears. He promises to be with us. Those are the only limitations he has. But somehow, I think particularly in evangelicalism, we've got this kind of idea that like we've cornered the market on everything God. Like, we know it all. Like, we can fully understand the master of the universe and everything he's doing all the time. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, a theologian, a scholar, a moralist, you can't. You can't know it all. There will be moments where God will move in a way that you cannot control and you cannot understand Like, Nicodemus, you think God's like a battery that you can place in your Tesla and then you get to, like, choose where the thing goes? You're wrong, mate, okay? It's like being a leaf blown on a tornado, okay? That's the difference here. And speaking of tornadoes, somebody else learned this point. In the book of Job, you may remember Job's story. He he lost everything. He lost his family. He's sick. He's covered in boils. He lost all his money. And the whole book, all he wants, all he wants is just for God to answer him. So God does answer him in Job 38. Then the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Job out of the storm, the wind. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid the cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. As in Job, honey, you're wasting your breath. You're chasing the wind. There are things you can't know. If you weren't there, If you can't tell me how I laid the foundations of the earth, if you can't stretch a measuring rod across the universe, there ain't no way you're going to be able to comprehend all my ways and all that I'm doing here. All you can do is trust me. As one pastor once said, you know, God trying to explain to us and to Job how he's up to what he's up to and what he's doing is like trying to explain quantum mechanics to my dog Coco, okay? We are talking about an intelligence that is orders of magnitude beyond ours. Like, we don't have the zeros to put that out there. He is so far beyond us, so high above us, so deep below us, that part of this God thing is accepting fundamentally that there is mystery and that we need to act with humility. And if you really think about it, if the God and creator of the universe is offering to lead you by the power of his spirit in your life. Like, he's the one that can actually do the math. Like, he's the one that actually knows what the consequences of your actions will be. He can see that far, right? Like, you might see something and be like, this is the right thing and I need to do it this way. And he actually knows that, yeah, it looks like it, but it isn't because X, Y, Z. Like, not following him, not listening to him, is just an unintelligent solution to the problems of life. 
And then finally, Jesus ends the conversation with Nicodemus here. Chapter 3, verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. So Nicodemus does not say another word to Jesus in the gospel. They do not speak again after Jesus says this, right? He's, he's being schooled here to the point where at the end he's just like, I don't, how can this be, right? How, how can this kingdom I've been waiting for be inaugurated right here in this moment? How can it be? And Jesus' answer to him, an answer to us, I think is truth at its most offensive, It is the great stumbling block of the gospel. Because the thing that moves this forward, the thing that really changes the world, is the cross. This is Jesus, this is that whole snake thing. It's a little bit weird. It's from Numbers 21. The Israelites were plagued by venomous snakes. They were getting bitten because of their sins. Moses is told by God, create an image of a bronze snake, and whoever looks at it, the poison won't kill them. And Jesus, it's weird, I know, but Jesus uses that as an allegory, an image for the cross. He will be lifted up, he says. He will be glorified, he says in John. But every time he says that, he's talking about the cross. And if you were sitting there in your armchair tonight, for the next, you know, gave yourself a couple hours with a pen and paper and said, you know, how does the world change? How do things get better? Probably the last thing you would write down on your own steam is God coming in person from heaven to reveal the heavenly things and that being him laying down his life. It probably wouldn't be Jesus, God in the flesh, coming not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It probably wouldn't be God emptying himself, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for the good of of others. This is, I think, the most offensive truth of the gospel because it redefines everything. It redefines what power looks like. It redefines what love looks like. Paul, at his most poetic, and this could almost be a commentary on the conversation with Nicodemus, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following, Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom 
And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I wonder if this is the block that Nicodemus stumbled over. I wonder if this is what he tripped over. Because we only see him two more times in all of Scripture. In John 7, when the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, wants to arrest Jesus, he stands up and kind of meekly says, well, shouldn't we have a trial first? And they get back at him. They say, are you a Galilean? Kind of like, do you follow him? Nicodemus doesn't say anything. And then at the end of the book, when Jesus' body is on the cross, Nicodemus and Joseph go to Pilate and ask for his body. And I think this is just one of those beautiful God moments, right? Here's, here's this man who came to Jesus at night who leaves confused and, and not understanding, holding the body of the one who brought light into the world. And I wonder what happened in that moment for him. Did he stumble over that back into darkness? Saying, no way, this can't be how God changes things. This can't be how the kingdom comes in. It can't look like this. Where's the military power? Where's the might? Where's, where's the swords? Where's the fire? Come on. Or did he stumble in that moment into the light? Was that the moment when he was reborn? We don't know. We don't know. But that same question faces each of us today. Have we come as judges of the universe to rule and lord over it with an iron fist, demanding service from people, or have we come to serve? Have we come to rule the world, or have we come to love it in the name of the one who does rule it? The cross stands before us today. The invitation to have our hearts renewed and the spirit fill us stands before us today. But if we're going to change the world, it's probably going to look like the way Jesus did it, which means laying down our lives for the good of others. Which path will you choose? The worship team can come up as I pray for us. Lord Jesus, I just ask that, uh, that the wind of your spirit would be blowing as we humble ourselves, as we come before you in worship, as we try to bring honor to your name. Point out the places, Lord, where we, uh, we think we've got graduate degrees, but we're still in kindergarten. Point out the places where you would have something different for us, where you would call us to something more. And give us new hearts and your spirit so that we can follow you in those commands. Pray this all in your strong name. Amen.